I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Today on the Executives Exchange, Daniel Polotsky and Ben Weiss of CoinFlip join guest host Christy Ross, CEO and President of Tasty Trade, to discuss the creation and development of CoinFlip, one of the fastest growing fintech companies. They discuss competition in the cryptocurrency world and advice they have for entrepreneurs in today's day and age. So our guests today are the co-founders of CoinFlip, which launched in 2015 and operates the world's largest network of cryptocurrency-powered kiosks by transaction volume with over 3,000 machines across the U.S. throughout 49 states in 2020. They started another company, which is an over-the-counter trading service called TradeDesk. And if that doesn't impress you, then this will. They're only 27 and 26 years old, respectively, both Chicago natives. Please welcome Chairman Daniel Polotsky and CEO Ben Weiss. Thanks for being here, gentlemen. Appreciate it. We appreciate you making time for us. Absolutely. Well, I have a ton of questions. And so I am going to kick it off and I'm going to start with Daniel first. So Daniel, I, I saw you went to Northwestern and Ben went to Vanderbilt. How and when did the two of you first meet? Right. So <clears throat> we went to different colleges, but actually Ben and I have been friends for a really long time. Uh, we've known each other since the Deerfield High School days. We got super well acquainted in Spanish two honors, and we've been in that class. And then ever since, you know, we've obviously taken our relationship to the next level and become business partners, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. I love it. So so how did you come up with the idea for coin flip? Like, what was the spark uh, in starting the company? Because you were, what, 20 years old at the time? Yeah, I mean, at the time, it was like probably 2013, 2014. I had heard about Bitcoin, which is, you know, I thought at the time, kind of like this revolutionary decentralized currency, you know, not issued by the government, limited in number, could be sent halfway across the world for a few dollars, open 24-7, all on a fraud-proof database. So I'm like, okay, like, how do I get my hands on some of this Bitcoin? Because I kind of viewed it as kind of lightweight digital gold. But what was really hard at the time was actually purchasing Bitcoin. Like Coinbase was a basically a company that built a tech product for tech people. It was very, very hard to get your cryptocurrency. Like the account department would take three to four or five maybe weeks to approve you. And it was all just very opaque and weird. So I thought, you know, how could you get some like a system where basically you could get cryptocurrency to someone like immediately, you know? You get the crypto before you even get back to your car. You have 24-7 customer service to explain the process. And you can use cash because it's like super, super inclusive and you don't necessarily need a bank account to transact. And that's kind of where the idea of the CoinFlip ATM came into play. But, you know, I put down a few ATMs and very soon after, you know, I realized that I definitely could not do it alone. So that's why, you know, I talked to Ben because he was one of my great friends in high school and he's like obviously very into joining whatever like it was obviously a big risk at the time but 
you know, hopefully he believed in me. So he joined and now he's the current CEO. He's doing an amazing job leading the company. And then there were two other co-founders, Chris and Alan. Chris was actually the the store owner of the first Bitcoin ATM where I had probably the second location. He had four uh, vape shops and he had an e-cig manufacturing line, was a practicing nurse. I really admired him as a businessman. And then Alan, who was working for him at the time, was one of the rare individuals who knew a lot about Bitcoin and technology back in 2015. So he was a really rare individual. So kind of the four of us set out on this amazing journey. We really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, but we became the fastest growing company in Chicago. And, you know, it's been an incredible journey. We build a, you know, we wanted to make it easy for someone like my mom or the average Joe to buy crypto. And we, you know, we built CoinFlip for the average Joe, not for tech people. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And I remember back then it was really, it was definitely not, um, something that was easy to get your hands on for being a retail trader or a, call it a, a, a retail individual. So, okay. So, so Ben, you were at Vanderbilt then. So what point then did you exactly join Daniel? Were you working on it from afar or did you join him after you graduated? So me and Daniel, when we were in school, we were big Bitcoin people. So we would chat about Bitcoin together and I would actually lend my Bitcoin to him to sell at the kiosk and then he would pay me back on Friday at the end of the week. And then after I graduated, I thought this was a great opportunity. I mean, I really believed in Daniel. Um, I saw him as someone who was a risk taker, but someone who was very smart and found something there. And really like me joining CoinFlow was more of a bet on Daniel than even the company in and of itself. Like my whole thought process was, well, Daniel isn't gonna fail, so I'm not Yeah. Hey, that's what that's what VCs do. That's what private equity does. They invest in the person. I mean, the idea has to at least have some merit, but but uh, I totally believe in that as well. So, okay, so Ben, do you have a philosophy then on having co-founders? Because some people swear by it, while others like to sort of stand alone and have that sole decision-making power. Like, what do, what do you think the benefits of having a co-founder is and what's your philosophy? You need a co-founder because who are you going to call at three in the morning when it seems like the business is going under? I mean, it's a very, even to this day, it's an emotionally draining experience. And I think having someone with you through the good, bad, and everything is super important. I will say, I'm sure there's times where both me and Daniel wish we could just be the sole decision maker and things like that. But I think we're stronger for it. You know, in Daniel's role as the chairman, he's still challenging me every single day on strategy, on expansion, on execution, you know, and then I'm challenging him from the bottom on his strategy, on his vision for the company, on the big picture stuff. So I think it can be very dangerous when you don't have someone around you to keep you in check. So I personally recommend um, having a co-founder. That being said, you know, I've known Daniel for 10 years plus before coin flips. So it was, a, it's not like I just had a random business partner without a track record. You know, I knew Daniel wasn't going to screw me over. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I mean, you had a relationship before, so you guys know how to work together. You know, each other's personalities. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about building the company and getting it off the ground. So Daniel, I'm going to throw this one to you. What were the first steps you took 
to get CoinFlip off the ground? Like what did, what did getting launched look like? And, and maybe talk a little bit about what, what the hardest thing um, to get right was. Right. I mean, I think that basically it wasn't, I'm going to probably come back to this a lot, but it wasn't some massive grand event. You know, it was basically like, okay, take this one day at a time, email the state regulators to make sure what you're doing is okay. Obviously, you know, get with a lawyer to make an AML KYC policy, find out which manufacturer is producing the best machines and kind of just take it a day at a time. Uh, I think something that I really didn't realize early on is how, you know, I obviously had the vision, but just how little I could do it alone. That's really why I recruited Ben and Alan and Chris as the co-founders is because it's really takes a team effort. We all have these blind spots and we complement each other by being able to like stay in our lanes and do what we think is good. And I think that a big thing early on that I definitely didn't know about that happened to us is cash flow. So like we would put down an ATM and people would buy all the cash and then we have to get the cash back to the bank. And then at 3.57 PM, you know, the bank teller was counting it up and the wire cutoff would be at 4 PM. And if we didn't get that wire off, we would have no Bitcoin to sell for the weekend. So I think it was super important to make sure that we had the cash flow. And that's something that we really didn't think about. By the on. way, too, the armored cars that we use today in 2016 and 2017, they wouldn't pick up Bitcoin related business. I mean, we were going ourselves with backpacks in some very dicey neighborhoods, picking up this cash ourselves and taking it to the bank. And I think one of the things is entrepreneurs is we were just willing to do what it takes to win and to right. succeed. That's first of all, that's super impressive. You need to at least get like, you know, a, uh, you're gonna have to get an armored car or something. <laughs> so, so, okay. So what was the aha moment then where you knew you had something where you realized this company could be a success? What was that, you know, aha moment for you? I feel like just that I posted the ad to some obscure website. It was basically just a P2P, like person-to-person -person Bitcoin buying website. And I didn't pay for the ad. It wasn't like a massive Google ad campaign or anything like that. I just posted the ad. And within days, there were like dozens of people coming to use the ATM. So I was like, okay, this is probably something that people actually want to use and would benefit from. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too, you have a lot of entrepreneurs that that build companies to solve a problem they have themselves. It's, and it's just so refreshing to know that there are other customers out there that see the same thing. Um, so Ben, what do you what do you see as the company's, well, what did you see as the company's biggest challenge in the beginning versus now? What do you think the biggest challenge is, you know, almost seven years later? Uh, in the beginning, the biggest challenge was just grow, grow, grow. Um, the business was profitable from day one, but we made the conscious decision to put every resource back into the company. Because of Ben. Because, yeah. He, he convinced me to like, he was really into like, I'm like, hey, maybe you want to take some money off the table for ourselves. And Ben was like, no, like we're way too small for that. Like keep plowing it back in. So, yeah. so in the beginning, it's a race. And now we have just under 300 employees and if you imagine, you know, like a ship and you have 300 people to make a turn 
or to change strategy. It's, you know, it's a, people call us a start, but it really is a corporation now. And it's about doing things at scale is totally different than, you know, when it's me, Daniel, and 15 people in a garage office behind a Popeye's, and we could just go to every single person and say, you do this, you do that, you do this. Now there's all these SOPs, there's all these people, there's middle management, there's, you know, all these different departments where you have to collaborate together. And I think the way you do that is you just hire the best people. If you hire the best people, you will have a good strategy. If you have a good strategy, you will make revenue. And if you make revenue and you're a company that's profitable, you'll usually have a good culture as well. Yeah, and I, you you hit the nail on the head in in hiring the right team and hiring the right people with the right mindset it makes all the difference in the world. So so then Ben, why did you start Trade Desk in 2020? Why did you guys um, do that? Talk a little bit about exactly what Trade Desk is and what the you know what the reasoning was for that during the pandemic. So you can never be complacent and. While the ATMs were a great business, continue to still be a great business, we wanted to build on top of that. And the ATMs are great for getting your feet wet, but we had a bunch of customers who they started using the ATMs, which, you know, the average transaction at the ATMs is a couple hundred bucks. And then they're like, you know, I want to buy 15,000. I want to buy 20,000. I want to send a wire transfer, but I want that same white glove customer support, which CoinBook has won so many awards for. And we thought, you know, this is what the customers are asking us for. By the way, the ATMs are very hard operationally to execute. So to execute an asset light trade desk is pretty easy. And we have, you know, all the skill sets we needed to execute on that. And now it's a decent chunk of our revenue and CoinFlip is going to continue to innovate and build on top of our base with all these new products and services to meet our customer needs. Well, so, and you, you just mentioned awards. Well, in 2021, you, um, CoinFlip was named as the fastest growing company in Chicago by Cranes. So congratulations for that. And I saw your numbers, which were super impressive. Maybe you can give some context on your revenue growth and then and talk a little bit about um, how you scaled the business, meaning putting it in context with some, with some numbers. Yeah, so in 2020, I think we did 50 million in revenue. And in 2021, we just did under 100 million in revenue. And, you know, I'm hoping to double that in 2022 um, and still have that startup like growth in year seven of the company, which is pretty remarkable. And we just continue to make investments in our people. Nothing is more important than the people we have here. The best entrepreneurs are self-aware ones and the ones that hire people. You know, our job is easy. We just have to come up with the vision and hire really good people around us and then just hold people accountable to execute. And then Daniel holds, you know, I run the day-to-day -day and he holds me accountable to his vision and that's how we do it. I, first of all, I love that. I love that Daniel called out that you had said, no, we're going to put more, you know, the money back into the business to build this. So you, and you got profitable pretty fast though. So, so how do you find the right balance between that cash burn and, and scaling appropriately? Because sometimes that is one of the hardest things to, to get right. Yeah. Well, I think there's almost a cultural thing now where fundraising has sort of become uh, you know, um, an end in it itself instead of just a means. And we've seen a lot of these companies blow up that never had 
a profitable business model, but they just had all this funding and there were some macro trends, lots of money in the economy. Now what we're seeing when the economy is sort of heading towards a recession is profitability matters. So, you know, if your business model doesn't work at a smaller company, it's hard to work at a bigger company too. So from day one, we were financially disciplined. We want to make sure we're, we spend lots of money on things that give return. Like we spend a lot of money on marketing, but we make sure every dollar has significant return. It's about bringing that financial discipline across the organization. And like people are starting to kind of like laugh at Warren Buffett, right? Like ever since 2008, we basically just had an upward stock market, upward economy. People are raising money at crazy valuations. People are like, oh yeah, like why would you need to like prepare for a rainy day? Because there basically hasn't really been a massive rainy day since COVID. But then in 2020, a lot of companies found out, oh yeah, if I just raise money all day and have a burn rate, then, you know, it might not end up so well for me if I don't actually have good business fundamentals or if I actually didn't have cash on the balance sheet to like weather the storm, which is take lessons from that. You're, you're spot on. You're absolutely spot on. Some of, some of those, um, some of those entrepreneurs make a business out of raising capital. (laughs) And I feel like in Chicago, there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are in it to build a sustainable company and they put their head down and they, they really focus on the right things. And you guys are like a prime example of that. Okay. So, so Daniel for, for coin flip or trade desk is the differentiator, um, well, I guess for coin flip, the kiosk itself or the technology or the customer service, like how would you say that you different, you're differentiated from your competitors? I think there's, a lot of differentiators in our product, one of which is the 24-7 customer service, like that white glove service. This is a very nascent and a very new industry, and not a lot of people understand it, even if they want to. So, you know, good luck getting on the phone with Coinbase or Gemini or another one of these exchanges. Like we felt like we really wanted to make our customers understand. And for that reason, I think that they come back. Also, just being able to have that instant release, you know, get that crypto before you even get back to your car, get that crypto as soon as you send that wire transfer, as soon as you swipe the card, whatever it is, so you can maybe use it for an NFT mint or something else is super important versus these exchanges that have like a massive lockup period for three to five days. And also I think the, a lot, a huge differentiator is just being inclusive. You know, a lot of, we accept cash and Online exchanges obviously don't accept cash, and we want to be able to serve those who are unbanked and underbanked and maybe don't trust bank accounts or can't afford to pay overdraft fees, and just being able to service every single person who wants to be involved in this economy. Yeah, and one thing that we did from day one is we never tried to imitate. We never tried to make you know a crappier version of Coinbase with less resources and less talent. We knew what our lane was. You know, Amazon started selling books online and then they built on top of it. And that's what we did. You know, we could have tried to make an exchange like Coinbase and just been another, you know, company that's like, oh, we're doing this too. But we saw our unique lane and we stuck to it and we did one thing very good. And then we rolled out other products on top of it, building on our base. You know, the trade desk is a huge success because we already have, you know, millions of customers at the kiosk to funnel to the trade desk. And so I think having that narrow focus, once you find it in just you know, it was, it would be very tempting to try and make an exchange early on, just like Coinbase, but we we found out something we could do that no one else could. 
Yeah, and that's a good point because I think you get a lot of entrepreneurs that are, you know, looking at the next new shiny thing and can't quite focus on really doing something um, specific, great first, which you guys um, obviously did. Well, so Ben, then who are your competitors? Daniel started to mention a few of them, right? But how do you define um, your competitors? Because the landscape I'm telling you, it, it's. I feel like the landscape is changing at record pace, and there are new entrants into crypto every day. So, who do you consider your competitor? So, there's direct competitors, which could be other, you know, Bitcoin ATM companies, and there's indirect competitors like Coinbase could theoretically compete with the trade desk in some ways. At the core, what we look as competitors is anyone who is an on-ramp for cryptocurrency services, whether it's PayPal. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, Cash App, whether it's another ATM company, whether it's normal ATMs wanting to get into Bitcoin, I think, you know, you can never be complacent. The, the thing that keeps me up at night is I never want to be, you know, a has-been company or one-hit wonder. So that's why we've always brought other innovative products like our trade desk on top of that. And, you know, we're going to have a lot of cool announcements coming up through the rest of the year too. And by the way, um, you know, a lot of tech companies are laying people off. We're still set to hire a hundred plus people by the end of the year. So it's still full speed ahead for us. That's awesome. That is so good to hear, especially in, in the current state of the economy where we're headed. So Daniel, how do you view the current landscape? And also, how do you, how do you view the future of crypto in general? Obviously you're bullish on it. Yes, of course. I think that... <clears throat> crypto has seen these massive, you know, run-ups and then these downfalls, you know, when I was getting into it in 2013, you know, the price went all the way over a thousand and then down to less than 200. Then in 2017, it went <clears throat> all the way up to probably, you know, 19,000 and then less than 3000 or around 3000, whatever. So these massive bear markets have happened in cryptocurrency before, but I think the strong companies will always come ahead and it's a great way to like consolidate because if you have a strong balance sheet, if you have a product that people believe in that you will survive any winter. And obviously this, like this period is a little bit different because the macro economy is now, you know, struggling. You know, I said like Bitcoin and crypto has basically existed in this perfect storm of a bull market for basically 12, 13 years. But now the macro economy is being iffy with, you know, with inflation, with the Fed raising the interest rate. But at the same time, I think crypto is as strong as it's ever been. You know, there's a lot of very diversified players in this space. And the whole market is worth probably, I think as of today, $1.3 trillion. So I think it's equipped to weather any storm. And it has the attention of the younger people who want to work in this space. So I think that we still have a long way to go upward despite the macro. Yeah. And our technologies at the kiosk allow us to take no price risk on the coin itself. So our company doesn't really get affected by the price of crypto. And that's because of the technology we have, which is a huge part of our success. Okay. Yeah, that matters. That's a, that's an important, um, that's an important point behind the scenes, right? So, okay. So and you just mentioned the downturn in the market. So we're, you know, and I do believe, and this is, you know, I've been around for too many decades and have seen sort of the ups and downs in, 
in the financial markets and you do see a lot of consolidation. So is there anything, any trends you guys are seeing right now? Um, because obviously they, all those crypto firms out there can't survive. So are you guys, you know, are you seeing any trends and are you guys actually looking at any point to potentially acquire another company? Um, you know, we're always looking for acquisitions and profitable acquisitions and recessions are a great time um, for doing that. So stay tuned on that front, but we're always looking at acquisitions. And I think recessions knock a lot of, you know, the BS out of the market when you saw with Luna and some of these other coins. But I, I think recessions are a great time to put your head down and build a yeah. great business. There's some great businesses that were built in bad times. And this is sort of where you earn your stripes. Right? And recessions are really like telling of the real businesses, right? I mean, you know, the businesses that have those fundamentals that people actually want to use, they aren't basically just hype trains. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So Daniel, um, as most people know, cryptocurrency has uh, its effects on environmental sustainability. So in general, you know, every Bitcoin transaction uses over 2000 kilowatt hours, which is more than a typical US household uses in about 10 weeks or so. Um, and then there are products like Cardano, which are more you know, energy efficient. And we're witnessing these products and crypto companies certainly evolving, right? So when we look at what you guys are doing, you're not mining coins, but can you tell us about what your commitment, CoinFlip's commitment is to sustainability? Like you said, we're not mining coins, we're just processing transactions, but we do plant a tree for every ATM that we install. So we like to do what little we can for the environment. And also, I mean, just to touch on that, I do think it's a little bit overblown, like Bitcoin's environmental impact. Like, I feel like that's a lot of it is misinformation or a smear campaign. Like, yes, it does use all this energy, but I feel like, you know, basic inventions like the automobile, for example, use way more are way worse for the ozone layer than Bitcoin. And it gets better over time. You know, these mine, miners are becoming more green oriented with hydropower and things like that. But, you know, we take a broader um, approach towards being good citizens of the community, whether it's going and uh, talking at CPS, whether it's hiring people from the local community, um, whether it's to pick up the cleanups we do with the park district and things like that. So we're always working, you know, and think Chicago as well. Um, so we're always being a good citizen of the community and especially in Chicago. And like just having that, the Bitcoin mining, like it's not like you can use the energy byproducts of Bitcoin mining, like Bitcoin mining produces heat, you know, that could be used to, for example, heat up your house and you don't have to pay your regular provider to do that. I think it's like super important. And just like a lot of towns or places use extra energy, like there's extra energy dissipated into the air and that nothing happens with it. So you may as well do something with it, right? Whether it's, you know, secure this amazing monetary network that is Bitcoin. And there are, you know, Ethereum and Cardano, which are proof of stake, 
And, you know, it's basically like if you have 1% of the Ethereum and you just pledge it and you get 1% of the mining rewards, but that's a little bit less secure. You know, you want something that you actually said like, oh, there was actually real work put into securing the system and like acquiring this Bitcoin. So yeah. that's why there is still room for Bitcoin. It's not nearly as environmentally it's like bad as technology. You know, it's we start with coal and we go to you know solar. So it gets better. It's getting better. It's over evolving. Time. No, I totally agree. I mean, the the industry itself is new enough. It's still evolving, and I think you're right. I think it gets a little bit of a bad rap, and it's you know it's well, not full context. Yeah, it's too much carbon. But you know, we all have to work. Um, and do our part and technology will hopefully take care of this issue over time like it has in a lot of other places. Yeah, sure. Okay, so so I'm going to I'm going to move over to workforce and talk a little bit about um, you know, I, I want to bring up another award that you guys won and Ben, this one's directed at you. Um, last year, uh, you guys were awarded the 2021 Silver Stevie Award for customer service. So kudos to you and your employees for that. Um, tell me about your customer service model and how you instill, I'll say, your customer-centric philosophy into the culture of all of those employees that you have. Because I, I, there, are, there are companies that do not do that well. It's, it's, uh, it's a special gift. Well, it's our secret sauce. And here at CoinFlip, we have 34 in-house customer support employees all in the United States, not overseas. Every year we answer hundreds of thousands of calls and our average wait time is less than 13 seconds per call. And we put the customer at everything we do, whether it's the customer service, whether it's having a frictionless process at the kiosk, you know, elegant simplicity, elegant simplicity and a customer service experience is what we seek to provide all the time, whether it's our trade desk or our kiosk. Yeah, super impressive. 13 seconds average response time is outstanding. I mean, I think it's 13 seconds too long, but we're working. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh my God. Well, so, and recently CoinFlip earned the 2022 top workplaces culture excellence recognitions for innovation, leadership, and work-life flexibility. So again, congratulations on that. You're obviously doing a number of things right. So how do you, how do you help your employees grow and develop and, and stay motivated? Well, I think, you know, what we do is we treat CoinFlip as a family and we make sure it's known that it's more than just a job whether it's, you know, career planning, coaching, uh, amazing events we have like Flip Fest, Happy Hours, the old post office, which has a gym and is a beautiful space. And then just having a mission. People want to be part of something that's greater than themselves. And CoinFlip is a place where people can come every single day and feel good about what they do. Yeah. yeah. That, making it a place that people truly, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but truly want to come to work. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean in the middle of covid our, we literally had our you know general counsel explain to people like sorry you are not an essential worker we need you to stay home now and people just still wanted to come in because that's how much they love working here listen that is that is awesome to where there are a lot of companies that can't get their employees to come back to work so so yeah, kudos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. today so. 
So Daniel, you know, I, I saw the announcement about your partnership with Think Chicago and World Business Chicago, and we too at Tasty Trade actually are big supporters of what they're doing there. So tell us about um, why you guys did the partnership with Think Chicago and maybe, maybe share your approach to talent acquisition. I mean, Chicago is the greatest city in the world. You know, it's where we came up as CoinFlip. We want to give that same opportunity to other entrepreneurs and you know people are often encouraged to go to like san francisco or new york maybe to start a startup but now it's miami yeah in miami but really all that does is increase your burn rate because you're spending more money for the exact same things and like chicago is just an amazing place it has some of the best universities you know columbia uh depaul northwestern new chicago where you can get talent from and like where else can you buy like a thousand dollar per month apartment you know, overlooking the lake because in all these other cities, nobody wants to build any housing versus in Chicago. We're like, oh yeah, come through. We have all this housing. We have all this talent. And it's really just an amazing city to start a startup. And we want to really foster that. If somebody doesn't want to work in Chicago, then we obviously will, you know, we'll accommodate their needs and we'll let them work remote. But we're always encouraging people to start a company here because we think that that is really the secret sauce. And there's an amazing group of like VCs, you know, whether it's Purple Arch Ventures or Hyde Park Angels or DRW. And I think the city needs to talk more about what we have here because I think sometimes Chicago and Illinois get a bad rap as a place to do business, but it's, you know, it's more than just economics. It's the culture. You, you know, people, you, you, the talent is what matters and your, your employees want to live in a place with cool restaurants, with clean sidewalks. Yeah. Um, you know, in a cosmopolitan area, and I think Chicago doesn't get enough credit. And I know, you know, the officials in Chicago have done a lot to make sure they're telling the story to attract talent here. And I think they're doing great. I think it has one of the most like chill, self-aware, like just the people here share those qualities more than any other place. I think Chicago is low key and everyone still gets a lot done. And I think like just the people here are super, super awesome to deal with versus other cities that I've been in at least. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's that also that it's that Midwest mindset. People are willing to help, you know, other, other, you know, entrepreneurs and, and people that want to build businesses. They're willing to help each other out, give each other a referral. Um, I've definitely, uh, you know, experienced that myself building our company here. So I am, I am with you on that. So, I, I want to do a little bit of a reflection here. So, um, and I'll, Daniel, I'll, I'll start this with you. In regarding to building CoinFlip, like, what are you most proud of? I mean, besides, you know, being the fastest growing company in Chicago. I <laughs> well, I know there's a list. So let's, <laughs> let's go to the one you're most proud of. <laughs> But I think just the fact that we didn't take VC money, I think that it's cool to kind of have a story that is a little bit counter to, you know, what's been the narrative for the last five or 10 years. Like, oh yeah, you need to build, you need to go to San Francisco, you need to raise $20 million, you need to put out a huge press release before you even have a product. Like, I think it's cool to just be like, okay, this is something that we provide. This is something that people want. And it's going to take off organically. Obviously, we're going to pile back every dollar back into the business. But it's cool just that the business fundamentals have like actually worked out and you can still grow even if you do make a profit. And like, you know, it's kind of cool 
building up this, you know, your baby to graduate middle school, high school, and now it's kind of this autonomous being that doesn't need any one person. It's just a really well-oiled system to succeed. Yeah. So, and Ben, you know, you're, you're up for um, EY's Entrepreneur of the Year, so Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, and that's a big deal. So what do you, what do you consider your best attribute or let's say leadership skill or quality? Um, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. So I'm happy to have um, people that are smarter than me in the room um, to help guide me. And I think just having that self-awareness is incredibly important. And then just being being able to adapt a lot of the things that may make you successful in the beginning become negatives down the road. I mean, for a lot of people, it's very hard, you know, the, being hands-on, being a micromanager, running through the brick walls, doing all those things that make you successful in the beginning become huge liabilities down the road. And I think being able to adapt and businesses are more situational than people think. Yeah, yeah, so true. So self-awareness though is, is interesting because you have, you have individual leaders that are, um, you know, much older than you guys that are not as self-aware and do not always make those choices. And they're still struggling with that, you know, decades you know, later. So, um, so that is definitely a, a great one to call out. So I'm, you know, you guys have built this, this amazing company together and the, the process of building a company results in a lot of learnings, no matter, no matter how you build it, you always learn so much. So if I were to ask each of you, what's one of the biggest learnings, one of the biggest takeaways, what would you say that is so far, you guys still have you know, a lot ahead of you, but to date, what would you say is your biggest learning so far? And this could be about building the company or even about yourself as a leader. Daniel, why don't we start with you? Sure. By the way, I'm going to go on a seven day hunger strike if Ben doesn't win that award because he got <laughs> to like kind of even being like to me, like stop micromanaging like you don't know this like you know there's other people here that are like better than you and like obviously I knew that early on because I brought on the initial team but it's great to be reminded of that and it's been honestly a great experience working with them but sorry what was the question it was <laughs> well but I I'm gonna just first respond to that because I think when and and my my co-founder co-CEO and I we went through and we went through the Ernst and Young Entrepreneur of the Year and it's a, it's an amazing process and I then was a judge for a few years so just knowing what I know uh, about Ben to date I would I would clearly put my vote in there for him so I I stand behind you on that Daniel um, but uh, but going back to the to the question the question was just about the biggest you know, learning the biggest takeaway to date, whether it was about building the company or about a learning about yourself? I think honestly, biggest thing is just start. You know, it's not, you don't have to make it like what I've been saying is big events, start with VC, quit your job, you know, go off and do this grand thing. Like just see if what you have is something that people want. Don't use a lot of capital to figure that out. And once you see that, then like, you know, maybe later you can, you know, go off and make it your full-time job or whatever, but don't put this massive pressure on yourself to make it be like, 
oh, this is the thing, like trial and error. And like another thing that I've learned is that the market is super, super important. Like at the end of the day, like we were really at the right place at the right time. Like there was this amazing thing called Bitcoin taking off and we just had our little boat and we just kind of like rode it up on that wave and was able to capitalize. But if you have like a subpar product in a great market, you can still succeed. If you have an amazing product in a terrible market, you will never succeed. Well, timing matters. I totally agree with that. And and the other thing I talk about all the time is, you know, d- the top three reasons startups fail. Well, one, the first one is there's no customer need. <laughs> so you you sort of look at those and you you check those boxes. So Ben, what about you? What would you say is your biggest learning, you know, to date or your biggest takeaway so far? Um, just to kind of bounce off Daniel a little bit, I think expectations can really become crushing and mess with people's head. And a lot of times, at least in the beginning, it was about those small wins and those small victories. Building a business is a sort of like working out in the sense that the results are always delayed. So you might eat healthy and go to the gym, but you might not see anything six months or a year. And it's very easy to feel like you're not making progress day to day. So you have to find those small victories every single day, especially in the beginning to keep you going. So like everyone says think big, but I say just win the day. Yeah, hit singles, hit singles. So, um, okay, so I am gonna, I have a few more questions I wanna run through, but I'm also gonna uh, put this out to the audience to maybe throw some of your questions into the Q&A chat so that we have we can make sure that we also answer your questions here. But I'm going to keep going with mine for now. Um, so let's see. So so Daniel, I'll throw this one at Daniel. If a, if a college student came up to you today and said um, that they have this idea and they want to start a company, but they want to know whether they should start it right then and there in college or whether they should wait and get a couple of years under their belt you know, of experience in another company on the job training type of thing first. So what advice would you, would you give them? Um, Same advice I've given multiple times throughout this interview, just start, see if you actually have something. Don't put too much expectation on yourself. Mm -hmm. Work, you could always have something else. You know, the more, the biggest problem comes when people create like huge expectations and they raise like this big amount of money for a company that doesn't pan out. Like you could have six failures being like, oh, you know, nobody really wants this product and nobody could know about it. And then you finally get up on that seventh one and then it's a home run. So as long as you're making those iterations and being honest with yourself about what people want, just start today a little at a time. Eventually, you know, it makes enough money to be your full-time job. Then mm-hmm. I think if people are asking, should I start a business? They already sort of know the answer. Um, I know in my life, every time I've asked for advice, I was actually just asking for permission. So I say, just go do it. Um, It only gets harder when you get older. Um, So just do it. Yeah, I I will. And that is one of my favorite sayings by Nike. I mean, their tagline, right, is just do it. And I hear that so often when I ask entrepreneurs about, you know, what piece of advice would they give? They're like, just jump in, just do it. So I I definitely support that. Do it. School, MBA. Yeah, just just go do it. The market will tell you itself. You don't need yeah. to. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, so um, um, a little twist on that that um, question, though. So starting while you're in college. So Daniel, I'm thinking back to the beginning of this interview, right? You're starting this out while you're in college. The question I didn't ask is about what did your parents say? Like, what did they say to you? Were they like, yeah, go do this? Or were they like, just get your degree? I mean, they were at first, they were like, okay, that's cute. But you know, <laughs> summer internship lined up, like, you know, like, are you going to have a career that's going to like, you know, we, we immigrated all the way from the Soviet Union. Like, are you going to have a career that's actually like 100% going to pay off? And I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I'll get those summer internships, whatever. And that's why I was doing both at once. But to their credit, you know, by the time, you know, we had 20 or 30 machines and to Ben's credit, I was like, oh, I was going to actually be a full-time equities trader. Daniel was going to try and get a job in the middle of coin flip. And, I'm like, and you're not Ben actually said like, no, like you have to just jump in. Like it, we have 20 or 30 machines, like we're good. And I asked my parents and, you know, they're basically like, okay, like, you know, you've, you've got this far, just give it a shot. So at first they weren't like, they were just like, okay, LOL, but to their credit, they did support me despite it being a huge risk and maybe not being a huge payoff for their massive trip across the ocean, you know? <laughs> well, but you know what? I think that's amazing that they were supportive though in the end. And obviously today they must be very proud. So, um, all right. So, and and I, I wanna ask the same question of Ben, what about your parents? Like what, you know, when you, when you, you know, look back and you're, you're, you know, leaving college, were they like, hold on, I want you to go a more traditional route? Or were you like, I'm jumping into this startup? Um, and they know Daniel, right? So I mean, there must so, have been at least some positivity around it. Yeah, I mean, they definitely thought the whole thing was bizarre, and they didn't understand it. But at the end of the day, they were very supportive. And at the end of the day, I was going to do what I was going to do, regardless of what they said. I think, I think they sort of gave up on telling me what to do, like, when I was 12 or 13. So that's awesome. I love that. All right. So I, um, I love this next question uh, because I, I have my own sort of passion around this, but do you guys each have a motto that you live by? Like sort of is your own personal tagline? Um, mine is no one sits on their deathbed and wish they took less risks. I love that. I'm a risk taker myself. Daniel? tenacity over talent. I think that talent is super important, but I think sooner or later, the one who wins is the one who thinks they can. It's just, you do it again and again and again, and you refuse to take no for an answer. You know, it might not be the first swing, but by the 14th swing, you know, you will hit that home run or nothing is guaranteed in life, but you're way more likely to hit the home run than someone who's just super talented, but, you know, won't, persevere through it and we'll just kind of give up at the earliest time. And I think Daniel's hundred percent right. I think one of the things that people don't understand about entrepreneurship is in some ways, a lot of it's luck. And the most important skill that I know that entrepreneurs have is just, they're open to the uncertainty of it. It's not like, you know, they're amazing at running a business. It's not that they're super smart. It's not that they have a great strategy that they can tolerate the uncertainty. And a lot of it is just lasting long enough in that uncertain environment till you find something that wins. Yeah, and I, I, I see this a lot is, is talking with entrepreneurs and 
it is finding that right balance of sort of being, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable <laughs> and, and, and having a positive attitude towards sort of just moving this forward and, and keeping, keeping the train moving. That's why you need a co-founder too. So I could, you know, call Daniel at three in the morning and be like, at least we're ruining our lives together. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, when you guys write your first book, okay. You know, then you have co-authors too. So this one, um, I like to. So what about if there was one person that you guys could have lunch with, dead or alive, okay, that you could just have lunch with, have a conversation, ask a million questions to, who would that be? It's uh, a mine's sort of a personal one, but my grandpa, who I'm named after, you know, Benjamin Weiss, who passed, I think, two weeks before I was born. So I'd love to chat with him. Oh, that is so cool. For me, it's probably, I would say Sal Khan. He founded Khan Academy. It was how I learned a lot of things growing up. You know, I just like basically a free database of any single subject. And I always thought it was really cool that someone is just like basically willing to, you know, forego the monetary benefit, you know, like colleges charge thousands and thousands of dollars for these classes, but basically putting it out there and making it equal for everyone. So someone in, you know, a different country, you know, whether it's Spain, Zimbabwe, Australia, whatever, can like learn all these different subjects and all they really need is an internet connection. So mm -hmm. I really respect that kind of, you know, generosity and altruism. And I hope to, you know, be that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if you guys were, um, to describe yourself in three words, what would those three words be? Oh God, for me, we're not that creative. I should, I should, you know what? I'm gonna change the question up a little bit. You have to describe your, your co-founder. So Daniel, you take three words to describe Ben and Ben, you take three words to describe Daniel. I can take, yeah, so the three words for Daniel would be um, thoughtful, caring, and neurotic. <laughs> I like, that's a good combo. Daniel? Never say die. Never give up. You know, I think that just for Ben, like, every time I was like, okay, we're cooked, like, there's no way this is going to happen or whatever. He's like, just hold on, man, like, we're still here. Let me make a few phone calls. And then all of a sudden, like two hours later, like the issue is magically fixed. So it's just like, it's kind of one of those, I forgot what they're called, but like, you know, when you hit them, they just kind of like bounce right back up. Like, it's just like. <laughs> they, well, see now I'm going to totally date myself here. They're like the weeble, weeble wobbles, weebles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they don't fall down. Okay. Let's see, given the success of your company, do you see yourselves expanding into international markets? Well, our first ATM just cleared customs in Canada a couple of days ago. So, um, and then we have some, you know, we're saying Canada like it's international, even though it's just right north of us, but we have uh, some cool announcements coming up in the next couple of months. But, um, you know, I intend for us to be in every country where it is legally possible to operate. Oh, excellent. I love it. And Canada is, it is a foreign country, okay? It has its own, its own currency, its own, you know, borders and, and, and. So totally, totally get that. 
Um, okay, so what would you say excites you the most about the future? Um, honestly, just having like all these people and resources around us, sometimes things are slower, but you have so much more leverage and impact. Like when you make a, like when you make a strategic decision, you have all the millions of dollars behind us and all the, you know, 300 employees to make it happen. Like that impact happens. So it's sort of watching your strategy and your thoughts happen on scale. And that was like, in some ways, I like this part of the company more than the beginning, because while the beginning was super fun, we had to do everything ourselves. And now, you know, we just have to have the right judgment and have the right strategy and everything else sort of executes itself. So I like having the resources and talent of a corporation. Yeah. And just like, I'm super excited about basically just continuing that theme of being the one-stop shop for crypto. You know, first we had the ATMs, then we launched the trade desk. You know, then ACHs and debit and credit cards were an option, wire transfers, you know, continuing to be that inclusive option where people can use cryptocurrency however they want to do it through coins. And we act like we're under existential threat every day because we know, you know, our top product today will be a dinosaur tomorrow. So we're never complacent. So if you guys didn't go into um, cryptocurrency, like, and let's say you just, you know, continued down your more traditional path, whatever that would have been, like, what else would you have gone into? Uh, I think like, what else would you have been? Like, if you would, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about career wise, what do you think you would have gone and done? I think I would have been a lawyer probably. Nice. You know, I probably would have, well, I, like I said, I was going to be an equities trader and like, you know, I like that risk and I like the markets and the financial markets, but I think I also maybe would have been uh, a party planner. You know, I like hosting events in my spare time and I like the camaraderie of having everyone come together. So I think that's possibly what I would have done as well. Well, you've built an amazing company so far. I can't wait to see what you guys do in the in the future here. Um, so we are going to wrap it up. I'm going to thank you both so much for sharing your story today. What I would like you to do, though, is um, share with the audience where they can find out more about CoinFlip if they want to check it out. www.coinflip.tech. And then on Twitter, on Instagram, at CoinFlip. That is perfect. All right. Well, I will end on that note. And I want to thank Daniel and Ben for being here and sharing their story. And I just want to say, I hope you all have a great afternoon and the best of luck to you, Ben and, and Daniel. Thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.